All right, well, I ask you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. First Corinthians chapter 4. We already know that believers at Corinth were elevating one teacher over another. And even though our church may not have that specific problem, uh, all of us have a tendency to do that. You know, um, when, you, when you're looking for a church home and you come and visit a church, you're looking at the pastor and you're trying to decide if he's real or not. Uh, if you like the way he carries himself, if you like the way he teaches. It's a big important thing. Uh, unfortunately, we have a lot of visitors who <laughs> don't come back, but um, this is something that happens. We all do this. You know, we go to a church, and whether their, their music program's any good or not, and whether they've got the right stuff for the kids. You know, when a, when a young married couple have children, and they, they're looking for a church home, and they, they were to visit our church, I can, in a way, understand why they might not stay. You know, we, we don't have a lot of things the bigger churches have. Um, the, the, their stuff is state-of-the-art. They have big, big rooms packed full of kids, and they've got... Uh, youth centers and uh, but you know when a, when a dad takes his family to to look for a church home and uh, after the service after they've left you know maybe he really liked the church and his son liked the church too but the girl just really didn't it just didn't really work for her something was something was off and so since something was off with her the mother isn't really on board and does dad say, no, we're going to go to this church and sacrifice the happiness of his wife and the happiness of his daughter? It doesn't really work like that. You know, the, the church has to be a good fit for all of them. And this is what we do when, we, when we're looking for a church home. We're, we're looking for a place where, uh, where there's peace and we, we have peace in our heart about where we're at. But it's wrong if we're driven by our preferences. I've told you the story before about where uh, our family went to Calvary Baptist Church in Latonia, and we went there for many years. But when we first went, uh, we went and they were singing these contemporary songs that I'd never heard before, and I absolutely hated it. Uh, they had a big band, and they had a big orchestra, and they actually had five, eight people up on the stage singing, and they all had cordless microphones, and when they would really get into it, They'd open their fingers while they were holding the mic, you know, they'd open, they'd, their hands would come open, they'd grab that mic, you know, they're just really into the song, and uh, I just couldn't stand it. <laughs> I couldn't stand it. And I looked around, and everybody else was singing, they were happy, smiling, they were clapping. I looked at my wife, and my wife was happy. I looked at my kids, my kids were happy. And so I started to realize that it was me. And at that point, my, my attitude began to change. It wasn't overnight, but my attitude began to change into where I learned to appreciate even the songs that I didn't like. I, I learned to love a lot of them. And if I could have been on the stage singing, I'd have had my eyes closed and my hand would have been going around that mic. That was my attitude. And so this is the attitude that we're, we're looking for. Uh, 
What's bad is when we, you know, when, when you go to a church and you go there and there, this isn't right. I don't like that. I just don't like that. They're okay, but this, you know, instead of saying, well, I don't really care for that that much, but I really like that, and I don't know. And you learn to move through things that maybe are not your preference. But in, in the church here in Corinth, this wasn't happening. They were elevating one teacher over another, and when you elevate one teacher, you're putting the other ones down. And in the process, you're elevating yourself because you're attaching yourself to that better teacher. So all of a sudden, you're up here and other people are down here. And so when you go to the big fellowship dinner, it's like this. So, hey, how are you doing? You know, it's like this. And then this one's like, no, it's not like this at all. It's like this because I'm with this teacher. It's just crazy. This is what was going on. There was no unity and it was silly. And we're, we'll see this problem is all through this letter. Uh, they're mistreating weaker brothers, ignoring their needs. Uh, there's big problems with the way they look at spiritual gifts. Now we all have a tendency to do this. And so as we studied chapter 3, we found out that the fact is that all teachers work with one purpose. In chapter 3, verse 8, it says that they're all in one purpose. One is not better than another. One is not more important than another. It doesn't matter who, uh, who plants or who waters, who pulls weeds, or who gets the harvest. You know, there's the guy that always goes around saying he led everybody to Christ and he's got a big feather in his hat. Well, he's ignoring the fact that there was all of these other people that were involved. We all serve in one purpose. And in chapter 3, verse 5, it says that each one of us has a role in that process that was given to us by the Lord. It says each has the role the Lord has given. And then in the next verse, it says, And I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And so instead of seeing everyone involved in the church as being equal, and all have an equal, important roles. There was this elevation. I really don't like the way that guy teaches. I don't like the way he preaches. I don't like his mannerism. He's bald or whatever. And they go to another church. And you just church hop around until you've fulfilled all of your little needs. Instead of recognizing that there is no perfect church. There's not one. And when you go to, it's just like in a marriage. You know, marriages are not perfect. You stay in there and you fight because it's worth the fight. And you go to a church and you find a way to serve. And when you bump into each other and things aren't going right, you find a way to keep moving forward together. This is the way we're supposed to be. And so as we come to chapter 4, Paul continues to dig into this issue of divisions. And he does this by using himself as the example. He is the one who has been found to be inferior. The Apostle Paul, if it's possible, was found to be inferior by many at the church in Corinth. And so we'll begin reading in chapter 4, verse 1, and we'll spend quite a bit of time on the first five verses. But if we can, we'll finish the rest of the chapter because they give a fuller explanation and picture of what is being opened up in these first five verses. Chapter 4, verse 1, it says, A person should consider us in this way, the teachers, as servants of Christ and managers of God's mysteries. In this regard, it is expected of managers that each one be found faithful. 
it is, it is of little importance that I should be evaluated by you or by a human court. In fact, I don't even evaluate myself. For I am not conscious of anything against myself, but I'm not justified by this. The one who evaluates me is the Lord. Therefore, don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes, who will, be, who will, who will both bring to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the heart. And then praise will come to each one from God. So it tells us here in the very first verse, it says, the person consider us in this way, as servants of Christ and as managers of God's mysteries. So it's two pictures there that work together as one. The first one there is servant. And, I, you know, when I first read this, I didn't believe it. I didn't really believe this is what this Greek word meant. I thought that, that was just pastors trying to pad it out, make it sound. But this really does mean this. I, I looked into it, but... Uh, this Greek word for servant, uh, consider us this way. Think of us teachers like this, as servants of Christ. And that word servant means an under rower. It refers to the galley warships that were powered by slaves, manning oars below in the hull of a ship. Maybe you've ever been in a canoe. I don't know if you ever have, but... Uh, you know, when you're, when you're paddling in a canoe and you just stick that oar in the water, just hold it flat, and it stops that canoe and starts to turn it. And, and you can really dig in. If you just paddle on one side and you really steer it quickly, you can really dig that oar in deep, hard and fast, and that canoe will really scoot across that water. You can really control a canoe really easy. Get up on your knees and just really dig in. I don't know if you guys have ever been in a canoe, but you can't. <laughs> You've ever done that before. And so you can just imagine that a warship, you would prefer that warship to be manned with oars. So you can maneuver, turn quickly, rather than being driven by sails. They didn't have motors. And so these warships, would some of them would have three different tiers of men rowing oars and these oars were real long and so four or five men would be on one oar and they'd be down in the hole and they'd be all chained together so if the ship goes down they go down with it so there was a great level of commitment out of these slaves they weren't there by choice they were chained together and not one of them was more important than the other they were all working together with one goal all of a sudden those guys wanted to win that war This is the picture of a servant. One of the teachers is not more important than another. And we're all part of a bigger picture. It's the goal and the ambition of that, the, the ship's captain of what the ship's going to do. It's God who decides what the ship is going to do and the direction it's going to go. And He, he tells us. He moves us. This is the picture that Paul is presenting. Servant of Christ. His servant. And then it calls us managers of God's mysteries. Manager is a word sometimes translated as steward. That's someone who's been left in charge of something. If you've ever babysat, you know, before the folks come home, there's a whole lot of cleaning up. 
and last minute yells at the kids to go to bed and act like you're asleep because your mom's going to be mad at you when she gets home because you've done a lousy job babysitting. Or maybe not, but... I know that when Julie and I are left with our grandkids, it's an incredible responsibility. And we want when mom and dad to come home for us to turn that baton back over to them and and everything has been taken care of and taken care of well. This is the picture of a stewardship. The things that God has entrusted to you, you're responsible for. And someday, you've been left in charge of it now, but someday you're going to be giving an account for how well you handled it. And so this is the picture. You've got someone who is a servant with a stewardship. And so you're going to try to do really well because you know someday there's an accounting coming. Jesus is going to be face to face with you. But Paul also highlights that it's a manager of God's mysteries. Your stewardship has many aspects to it. But here in this text, it's talking about God's mysteries. Mysteries means the things that have been revealed to us. There are several mysteries in the New Testament. It's just a, you know, we, when we think of mystery, we think of a murder mystery, but, you know, where you fall asleep before you find out who the killer was. <laughs> I remember Julie said that one time. I fell asleep before I found out who the killer was. <laughs> but uh, this is not what a mystery is. Here, a mystery is something that has, uh, something God has known that we didn't know, and maybe we were in the dark about it and we wondered. But then He revealed details to us, He told us some things. So it's a revelation. Um, there's se- several in the Bible. In Ephesians chapter 3, the, the body of Christ, uh, both Jew and Greek coming together in one body, that was a, a mystery. Ephesians chapter 3. In Romans chapter 11, it tells us that the partial hardening of Israel's heart is a mystery. There's a partial hardening until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. He says, I don't want you to be unaware about this. So it's a revelation. Last Sunday we read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 about uh, the resurrection of believers, the resurrection of the church, when we meet Jesus in the air. In that passage in in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he says that, I do not want you to be unaware of these things, brethren. You know, we will not all sleep. And so he says that it's from a word from the Lord. Or in the Holman Christian, it will say a revelation from the, from the Lord. It's additional information. It's, there's some clarity coming through. When you get to the end of this book we're studying, 1 Corinthians, you get to chapter 15. In verse 15, 51, he's talking again about the resurrection. And he refers to this aspect of it as a mystery. You know, in the Old Testament, the resurrection was veiled with uncertainty and, and speculation. There wasn't a lot of details. That's why in the first century there was actually a, a sect who denied the resurrection. That was the Sadducees. But there are many in the Old Testament, the, David and Daniel and Job, they anticipated the resurrection, but there wasn't a lot of information. It was veiled with a lot of uncertainty. Things that we take for granted especially now with all of the information that has been revealed to us in the New Testament. So we can see that there has been a progressive unveiling of information over a period of time. 
This is something that parents have been doing since the very beginning, telling their children what they need to know when they need to know it, not more than they need to know. That's something that some of our politicians and educational systems have seemed to have missed the memo on. But you don't tell your kid more than they need to know. You tell them just enough. You don't lie to them. And this is what God does with his kids. He tells us what we need to know now. And there's, a, there's an aspect of that where there's a lot of unanswered things that requires us to trust him. But this is the nature of the way God has revealed things. So in our passage this morning, Paul is talking collectively about all of the things that God has revealed. The oracles of God. The Bible. And he says that, uh, that they, or here in the text it says us, please consider us in this way. So he's talking about teachers. We have been entrusted with this Bible, with this revelation from God. And, you know, we don't want to miss the, miss the point here, is that all of us are servants of Christ. All of us are the rowers. All of us are managers. All of us are managers of God's Word. God ex expects us to study, to show ourselves approved, so that we accurately handle what He's told us. You're going to find out in this passage that there is, the Bible is held up as high as it possibly can be in this chapter right here. The Bible is like super important. And it is for good reason. So all of us have stewardships. We're all servants. But here he's talking specifically about the teachers. He's, he's using them as the example. And remember that when Paul's talking about the teachers, he's talking about them too. Because when you elevate a teacher, you move right up there with him. Now you're way up here. And so he's talking to all of them. And it says here that uh, there in verse 2, it says that they were to be found faithful. To be found faithful. When Jesus comes back, you're to be found faithful. And so it is all talking about his return and specifically what we studied in chapter 3, the Bema Seat, the judgment seat of Christ where we will all stand before him. This is all looking to that. In verse 3 it says that it is of little importance to me that I should be found evaluated by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even evaluate myself for I'm not conscious of anything against myself, but I'm not justified by that. It's only the Lord who evaluates me. Again, Paul is talking about the judgment seat of Christ. He's saying these things in light of that. He's talking about judging other believers, whether it's a teacher or the Sunday school teacher, or whether it's the deacon, or whether it's the, the person who makes the coffee in the morning, the person who sits quietly in the pew and leaves without really talking to anybody, passing judgment on each other. He says to do this in light of the Bema Seat. Because only God can properly analyze a person's work or a person's motive. Now somebody can tell you what their motive is. They can say, I did this because. It's okay, I know your motive, so now I can pass the judgment. Well, you see, only God knows all of the aspects, all the variables, all of your history, all of the components that went into your decisions. And 
the underlying things of your motives, why you feel the way you did, why you did what you did. It's very complicated. It's far above our pay grade. We can't do that. Only God can do that. Now, Paul's saying that since this is true, we should have humility, realizing that we can't even judge ourselves. How does that work? You can't even judge yourself. Paul says, I don't even judge myself. What's he talking about? He's saying, you know, even when I think that my motive is pure, eh, really only God can get to the bottom of that one. How pure my motive really is. This is the Bema seat. Now he isn't saying not to make judgments. He's not saying... Uh, that doesn't mean that we do not or should not make assessments. He isn't saying, you know, like Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 in the Sermon on the Mount, judge not lest ye be judged. We all have heard people say that. Usually they say that to avoid being confronted about something wrong that they're doing. He's not saying that. We all make assessments. We decide where we're going to eat and when we get there, what, what food we're going to eat at the restaurant, what we're going to wear, and you know, what we're going to watch on TV. We make judgments about things all the time. Big, big and small ones. In the Sermon on the Mount, after he talks, he's going to ask them to make assessments about dogs and swine and false prophets. God does expect us to make judgments. It's just a certain way. This judge not lest ye be judged is followed by an explanation. He's saying, when you see a speck in your brother's eye, make sure you remove the log from your own eye. Now that person does have a speck in their eye. There is something wrong. But he says, before you can do that, you have to take, take the speck out of your own eye so that you can see clearly how to remove their speck. Jesus turns this whole attitude upside down because he's saying, he's saying that once you remove this, then you can see clearly. Well, you can't remove something from your own eye unless you have humility. You have to humble yourself. And with, when you're inside humility, it yields love and compassion for other people. All of a sudden, you're looking at the other person who has a speck in their eye completely different. And so when you remove it from their eye, you're doing it out of love and concern. You're trying to help that person, not condemn that person, not put that person in their place, not so that you're elevated again. It's a completely different attitude. The Sermon on the Mount, this is what Jesus teaches us. And so no, we're not uh, saying that we never make assessments of ourselves. But Paul is saying that even when he thinks that his motive is pure, he doesn't, that he's not justified by that just because he thinks he's in good standings. It's only when God's judgment reveals the true motives and what is truly rewardable in his eyes. So he says in he says in verse 4 and 5, there, he says, so don't judge prematurely. Don't put the cart before the horse. Don't jump to conclusions. It's only the Lord who can evaluate us. And then verse 5, when the Lord comes. So it tells us this is happening when He returns. In the Bema seat in verse 5, you can see it because he says, this is when praise, reward, will come to each one. That's really exciting. That's really good news. It says praise will come to each one from God. So all of us are going to be rewarded. It's going to be a good day. It doesn't have to be a bad one. So it's not talking about being you know, judgmental. Um, 
there was a judge who completely lost his mind. Just completely lost it. You know what they called him? They called him Judge Mental. That's the only joke. It's a bad one. (laughs) All right, so let's keep reading. Um, Verse 6, it says, um, Now, brothers, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. And so he's he's using them as an example. Uh, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the saying, Nothing beyond what is written. The purpose is that none of you will be inflated with pride in favor of one person over another. So when he says this phrase that he wants them to learn nothing beyond what is written, he's tying back into God's mysteries. I've got a picture up there of an umbrella. And the umbrella is uh, where we're safe. That's under God's wings. And we want to stay underneath there. In Sunday school, we were talking about how there is creative liberty in the, in the chosen. And as great as the chosen is, we have to be careful with that show because sometimes they take liberty. It's really important for us to know what the Bible does and doesn't say. Exactly. So that we know we're only, where we're at is Scripture. Just Scripture. God's revealed mysteries. This is where we live and breathe. This is where we know what is truly right and wrong, what God has chosen us to live and and live by, what we're supposed to breathe by. When you get out from under it, there's dangers. You put yourself in jeopardy. And here, in verse 6, he says, nothing beyond what is written, the Bible. So we only want to move underneath the umbrella of what God has revealed, embracing, embracing His wisdom, embracing His truth, And his instruction. And so, again, here the purpose in verse 6 the purpose is that none of you will be inflated with pride in favor of one person over another. Now, I don't know if you remember it or not, but when we got to chapter 2, we were talking about the the underlying motive of of being worldly and, and turning your back on God's wisdom and seeking the world's wisdom, and how all sin ultimately boils down to pride. Well, he finally says that here. Pride. That's what's going on. He'll say it again in verse 18. Pride is finally identified as being at the heart of what is happening. You know, it said to, to not judge prematurely. Some of your texts might say, do not judge before the time. The time is the Bema seat. Because whenever we pass judgment wrongly like this, we've elevated ourselves. And so there's, there's pride. And all of a sudden, we think that we're actually competent to pass judgment. Remember, Job said you know, he wanted to have a, a hearing before God. If I could just tell God, you know, talk to God, I could, I could show Him. If I could have a hearing in front of God, I could show Him why He's wrong. So that was, that was the wrong attitude. And he learned that. You know, so the, the thing is that in, church, in a church environment, people can look like a million bucks. But just because God uses us doesn't mean we're okay with Him. We think about the book of Judges that we study, and those men, those, those different people, and their, their weaknesses and failures. But God used them. 
My point is, is that in a church environment, some people can look like they got it all together, but they don't. It's only when everything's tested by fire, that's when we really see what's rewardable in God's eyes. If God had to only use the, the best people, the good ones or the pure ones, He wouldn't have anybody to work with. And so you know that even the best looking stuff has got junk in it. That's why it has to be tested with fire. Worst case scenario, you know, is you, know, you, you throw the, the hay and the cardboard, the paper, and you light it, and it, it catches the smaller little twigs, and then the bigger twigs and sticks, and then it's uh, strong enough, a good bed of coals enough to where it's burning that wood. But after it's all burned, just think how long, time, how long a, a piece of wood takes to burn. It takes quite a while. After it's all done, even the coals are gone, and it's just that ashes, you know, and you can put your hand in it, pop around in those ashes, and you don't find anything. It was junk. God may choose to use what we do, even when we are doing it with the wrong motive. Some of the things that are done with the wrong motive are great works. They're like a piece of wood that burns a long time. But that great work, in God's eyes, was worthless. And Paul's saying, who, who makes you superior? I'm starting in verse 7 now. He says, for who makes you so superior? Why do you have that you, what do you have that you didn't receive? If in fact you did receive it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? So we're beginning to see what having inflated, being inflated with pride does. He says, you are already full. You've got it made. You're complete. You're rich. You're reigning like kings without us. And I wish you did reign so that we could also reign with, reign with you. It's like you teach somebody how to do a job and then they're doing it well and they're getting praise and they forgot all about the fact that you trained them, that you were patient with them and kind and you helped them do everything. This is what these folks are doing. They don't need the apostles anymore. They've arrived. They're reigning like kings. But we remember in chapter 1 that God brought together a very unremarkable bunch of people. Verse 9 says, For I think God has displayed us, the apostles, in last place, like men condemned to die. We have become a, a spectacle to the world and to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ. But you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. He said, you know what, guys? Up to the present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty. We are poorly clothed, roughly treated, homeless. We labor, working with our own hands. And when we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we respond graciously. 
Even now, we are like the, the world's garbage, like the dirt everyone scrapes off their sandals. all the glory but they also get all the criticism and if you lead for the glory then you're leading with the wrong motive and if you lead in such a way so that you don't receive any criticism you're leading with the wrong motive what's best is that you you take your steps forward you do your best what you think is right you ask God to protect you and if God doesn't protect you, then He'll walk through whatever you're dealing with. And then you keep going. You don't quit. God thinks of all of us as being leaders. Whatever stewardship He has entrusted you with, He considers you to be the leader of that stewardship. Not just the pastor. We're all leaders. We're all ambassadors for Christ. You know, when an ambassador takes the message from one nation to the next, it's not always something the other nation wants to hear. We have the gospel. We carry the gospel. This is our responsibility. You know, the Marines, they are the ones who go in first. Take that ground. Establish that beachhead. We think about D-Day and those fellows that took the shores of Normandy and all those casualties. And days later, people were drinking coffee, planning their next move as they ventured out from there. God wants us to take the lead in another military point, if I could keep doing this. They call it taking point. Whenever you're going to go through a field or through the jungle or through the desert or wherever you're going to go, there's always somebody who's going to be in the front. It's the position of greatest exposure. And this is where God wants us to be, in front. It's a lowly position that the world assigns. And we're to take it willingly to be last place and have the humility of Christ. In verse 14 it says, I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. This is really important for us to remember. He's not trying to stick it to them. He's not sticking the knife in their stomach and turning it. This is a warning. He's saying, if you continue on this path, you can heed the warning, you can ignore the warning. It's just a warning. For, he says, for you can have 10,000 instructors in Christ, but you can't have many fathers for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. We remember in chapter 1 when Paul said that he was so thankful that he didn't baptize a whole bunch of people because everybody was gravitating towards who baptized him. Well, it's hard to be the father if you didn't baptize very many if you're saved by being baptized. Salvation comes through faith in Christ and the good news of what he did. That's the gospel. That's where salvation comes. 
And so in verse 16 he says, Therefore I urge you to imitate me. This is why I have sent Timothy to you. He is my dearly loved and faithful son of the Lord. He will remind you about my ways in Christ Jesus. Just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now some are inflated with pride. This is why we're not coming to you. But I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I will know not the talk, but the power of those who are inflated with pride. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you want? Should I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? We think about the things that Paul said here. He he described his condition, that they were hungry and they were thirsty. They were poorly clothed. They didn't have the right clothes for the environments they were in. They weren't treated nicely. They weren't pastors with manicures. They worked with their own hands. And then Paul says, imitate me. I'm sending Timothy to you so that he can remind you of my ways, the way I do things, the way I think, the way I look at life. Imitate me. And he says, look at me. I'm hungry and thirsty. I'm poorly clothed. I'm roughly treated, homeless. But when we are persecuted, we endure it. When we're reviled and looked down upon, we bless. When we are slandered, we respond graciously. We're like the world's garbage. So how are you going to respond to this information? This is an example. He's making himself as an example. You know, an example serves the purpose of demonstrating how we're supposed to be. That's the purpose of it. How something should be done. We're supposed to be servants of Christ and managers of God's mysteries. So when I come to you, it might sound a little bit over the top the way he ends this. Should I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? But you have to take into account everything he's been describing and all of the things that we're going to find out that are going on in this church. There's a lot of things being taken into consideration. But he's basically saying, do I have to come with further correction or I'm going to get there and find a bunch of humble folks who are ready to hug and give me a kiss on the cheek. What am I going to find? What do you want? Which one of those do you want? That's what he says. In closing, this is William Carey. He served as a missionary in India. In India. He did many things there. He invested his life in India. He started schools for the impoverished children. He founded a theological seminary. And he translated the Bible into many dialects and languages in India. He would find a new language or dialect and he would learn it. He would have people teach him it so that he could translate the Bible for them. He did this for probably six or six or seven different languages he translated. But this was not an easy road. It came at great cost. It began on a long voyage from England to India on a ship with his wife who was pregnant with their fourth son. One of their sons would die of dysentery. 
and his wife, she had a nervous breakdown and she never recovered. This mission came at great cost. It all began in 1792. There were some particular Baptists, and that's, that's what their name was, particular Baptists, but they, they formed a society, and the, and the purpose of forming the society was to reach the, un, to reach the unreached, to take the gospel to places where it wasn't. And so a year later, when William Carey and his family were getting ready to sail for India, there was another fellow that went with him. He met with the leaders of the society and had a long discussion, and they talked, and they prayed. And there was a guy named Andrew Fuller who was there. And he described their conversation like this. He said, he described it with, as an analogy. He thought about the things they were saying. Because you can imagine it was stuff like, well, we're going to go here. Will you take care of this while I'm gone? Okay, well, I'm going to do this. Well, you know, you guys got to keep, keep giving us, helping us. And just a conversation about how this was all going to happen because there was an umbilical cord connected to England while he was in India. There was had this conversation. So when Andrew Fuller described this conversation with them, he used an analogy and he said it was almost like we were sending a couple of fellas into a very deep, unexplored mine. And right as they were getting ready to go into the mine, William Carey turned and said, I will go down if you will hold the rope. And they all pledged to do that for the rest of their lives. Paul is telling us is that the body is best when we all work together. So let's close in prayer.